The second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Hear the word of the Lord. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, some of you know how much my family and I love spending time in the mountains, how much we love skiing in particular. And for me, personally, there's nothing more terrifying than coming to a new mountain a new ski situation and having to find my way around. And that's why, and you've probably done the same thing, whenever you arrive at a new location, whether it's for skiing or hiking or any other sort of situation in the mountains, you usually gather around the trailhead, right? That's one of the first things that you do. You go to the trailhead and you sort of gather around the map. You gather around the map to try to get an oversight of where it is that you're headed and where that you're going. And I've noticed that for me, when I'm in the mountains, it's not only helpful to gather around the map once, I notice that I need to do it multiple times. I need to do it over and over and over again. So sometimes we take a picture of the map, sometimes we have it with us, But usually when we're going up, we try to figure out where we are. And then as the day goes on, we explore the map again. And after we've taken on some of the terrain, we look at it again, trying to make sense of what we've done and trying to figure out exactly where we've been within that landscape. Raise your hand if you've ever done anything like that, if you know what it feels like to look at the map and try to figure out where you are. The same thing can happen at Disneyland. (laughs) You know, you're looking at the map like, oh my goodness, we need to get to this area. Where on earth is Tomorrowland? Actually, it's just right when you go in, right? 
I feel like it's always the one with the Indiana Jones ride that I can never find. So you need to take a look at the map in order to explore the terrain, right? In order to figure out where you are and where you're going and where you still want to go. And the map, I found, is an essential tool when we're on the mountain. But here's the other thing that I've learned about the map. And tell me if this sounds right to you. That it's not everything. It's not actually everything when you're up there in a difficult situation or when you're exploring something for the first time. There are times where the map begins to elude you. There are times where you thought the map was leading you one way, and then suddenly you get to a point where you realize that perhaps you read it wrong and you took a wrong turn. Or perhaps you just forgot what it said altogether, that it was unclear. It looked like you were supposed to end up somewhere, and in fact, you're somewhere completely different. And I've learned that the map is only as good as how it works when it's on the road. That the map is only as good as how it works when it's on the road. A good map will be made by folks who know the ins and outs of the trail, right? A good map will be useful because it's trustworthy, because the folks who have helped to create the map have actually been on the trail. And they know how hard it is. They know where parts of it are confusing. confusing. A good map is made by those who have lived the terrain and who can offer a strong assessment of what's going on on the ground. And I want to use this analogy for us today because the text that we read, both of them, the earlier text that we read that came out of the letter to the Hebrews and now this gospel text in Luke, both texts make the assumption that you will get on the trail, that the reader will get on the trail. Both of these texts are working with that assumption that the gospel story is a story that must be lived, that it needs to be experienced, that it needs to be embodied. And that once we get on the trail, the real question that we begin to ask ourselves is how does all of this begin to work? And I know that that question of how it all begins to work when we get on the trail is a little bit different for all of us. Because the reality is that we are all mapping completely different terrain. Some of you are mapping terrain towards the end of this life on earth. And that is a very different kind of terrain. It has its own ups and downs, ins and outs. It has its own blind sights. And so your map looks very different than the folks who are navigating middle school for the first time. Their map is hard. It's confusing. But it's different. It's different for folks who are living life trying to raise children. Folks who are asking questions about justice and ethics. Folks who are navigating the internal reality of their gender identity. We all have such different maps 
that we are trying to navigate as we go through this life. And the gospel story knows this. And so it offers us this broad map that can be used in different contexts, that can be embodied, whether you're a first grader or a seventh grader or a high school student, whether you're coming into the fullness of adulthood, whether you're going out into college, whether you're raising children, whether you're coming to different seasons of life. The gospel story is big and broad enough to provide a map in each of those different contexts. And that's part of what the gospel writer and the Hebrews text writer are getting at today. The map for you is different than the map for me, but as we come to this text together, we celebrate that we are all on this trail of trying to figure out what it means to navigate the embodied life of the gospel in each of our different situations with each of our different questions. Our text in Luke today is very, very sharp. It is very sharp. And I just want to say that as I thought about this text, do you remember or have you ever been around maybe like a 12 to 18 month old when you give them a slice of lemon? Who's done that? I love it. It's one of my favorite things when you give the baby their first lemon. Sometimes we did it like around nine months because they're just starting to eat and they're so excited and they take the lemon and what face do they make? Why on earth did you do this to me, right? And we all know that lemons are okay. They're important. They're something that we need, right? They actually are an important part of our culinary life, right? But alone, we make that face. And that's sometimes what these gospel texts do to us. They help, they make that pungent face where we're like, wait, this is a little bit of a lemon. I didn't quite know this was going to be such a hard text. They make us wince. And we don't get them or understand them immediately. And perhaps... This is always our temptation when we come to difficult texts like this. We have the tendency to try to make them small, right? We have the tendency to try to think that they just mean one thing. And we forget when we are in the middle of these sort of lemon texts, and I say that totally from a positive perspective because I love lemons, but when we're in the middle of these sort of lemon texts, we think, oh, we've got to, it must just mean, oh my gosh, is that what Jesus is saying? That we just need to give everything up or we can't follow him? What is this going on? And we kind of either put it out of our mind or we just kind of make a face like, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do that today. And it becomes a small text, right? becomes something that we have trouble understanding. And when that happens, we need to pause. We need to pause because it's important to remember the breadth and the depth and the complexity and the largeness of the triune God, right? And so when that happens, we can pause and say, we don't quite get it, but there's something more to be said about this text because we always come back to the largeness and the expansiveness of the triune God. And so sometimes we need help and support together as we come around so that we can get in the text and try to figure out what it is that Jesus is up to. Remember that in all of chapter 14, if you were to go back to the beginning of chapter 14, he's coming into a situation where he's with the Pharisees in this great big dinner banquet, right? So he's in a situation with folks who have a lot of power, 
who are up to a lot of things within that culture, who also have the ability to control and to sort of um, help other folks understand the narrative around the religious landscape within that whole Judean countryside. Okay, these are the folks that he's talking to when he's in this situation where he, he shares this about um, the cost of discipleship, as sometimes this text is labeled. So when you look at the very beginning of this text, you see that it has this sentence about the whole crowds that began to follow him. The whole crowds that began to follow him. And if you think about the trajectory of a religious leader, this is exactly where Jesus should have ended up, right? This is what every rabbi would have wanted, to be in a situation where the whole crowds began to follow. And it's in this situation where Jesus has to stop and draw a wall and draw a boundary and make it clear that he is not interested in celebrity. And instead, he gathers everybody around him and he helps them understand that this is the moment where he is going to ask them to pay attention to the landscape of their own soul. He is going to ask them to pay attention to the landscape of their own soul. And so, friends, I want to help us just get behind Jesus here. Even though he's giving us a little bit of a lemon text, we need to get behind him. Because we need folks who can help us understand the landscape of our own soul. It's one of the things that we need the most support in as we navigate this North American culture. He's so interested in the landscape and the well-being of their own soul, so interested that he does not soothe or encourage the crowds in any way. In fact, he offers them instead a totally scathing report. He says, take a good look, friends, at what you are up to in this life. Because the life of the gospel the life that you will enter into when you begin to follow me, the life that then becomes sort of under the umbrella of this large person, of the person of Jesus Christ, it will begin to redefine everything. It will offer a redefinition for everything that you ever thought about. It will redefine family. It will redefine life. And you need to know if you are ready for that, Jesus says. You need to know if you're ready. And then he offers this last verse, which is so amazing. And he says, none of you can become my disciple if you don't give up all your possessions. That's the way that it's rendered in the text that you have before you. And another way, it's a very hard text to render. If you look at other translations of this particular verse in the Gospel of Luke, you will see that every gospel tries to render it a slightly different way, or every translation, I should say, tries to render it a slightly different way, because the two words that you're working with here are actually really hard to translate. And another way of rendering this might be something like, 
Something like, and this isn't exact, but something like, you cannot become my disciples unless you are ready to say goodbye. That's the word that's used for give up, say goodbye. So it's really a word for farewell. It's used in other texts in the Gospels where somebody has to leave somebody else. So it's saying, unless you're ready to say goodbye to everything that has you. So not everything that you have. Jesus isn't talking about things here, but he's talking about authority and ownership. He's saying, unless you're willing to say goodbye to everything that has you. So of course, he's also talking about things, right? Because there are plenty of things that have us, that get us. But he's not just talking about sort of a big, huge Marie Kondo of our homes, right? He's talking about get rid of the things that have you because they're not going to stop having you. And the only one who deserves to have you is the one who has loved you since before the foundation of the world. So right in the moment where Jesus has this opportunity to have all of the crowds follow him and get behind him, he says, no. Take a good look at who you are. Make sure that you're ready to figure out what has you. Make sure that you're ready to redefine everything that you thought you knew. Because this life of discipleship It's going to be different. It's going to be different. He's also talking to the religious leaders. How does religion start to have us? Right? There are ways that it can get us. Even now, Jesus says, got to get ready to redefine it. One of the things I want us to think about when it comes to this text is as we are living in this 21st century of Seattle, what has us? Does being an American have us? It's not quite the narrative here of North Seattle suburbs, right? But we've got other narratives that have us. Niceness. Politeness. Right? We've got other narratives that have us. Does being reformed have you? Not always. Not always. But maybe other things have us. Being educated, sometimes that has us. Being cool, sometimes that has us. And none of these things in and of themselves are wrong, right? That's the other thing that we want to clarify. None of those things in and of themselves are wrong. Because in fact, seeing it that way is too small. It's too small. But the real invitation is that we are not held by those things. They can't have us. 
Because the God who made us is bigger than all of those things and doesn't want us to be had by anyone except for someone who is big enough to hold what it means to be human. And that is such a big thing. And that is what the gospel writer, or not the gospel writer, that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. That's where this wonderful sort of three verses at the end of chapter chapter 11 and beginning of verse 12, that's what that writer is sort of revving up around. This idea that nothing can have you. And the writer says, remember these cloud of witnesses, all of them, all of them who have entered into this narrative that is so big. Remember all of those who came before you, even so far that they didn't even know that you were on the horizon. Remember the folks around you who saw the vision, who knew the largeness of the triune God. And so set aside the smallness, set aside the sin. It's not worth it. It is not worth it. It is not worth it. Okay, when I think about sin, I think about the things that get in the way from living the largeness of the life in the image of God. And friends, it is not worth it. So the gospel writer says, set those things aside and look to Jesus, who will be the forerunner and completer of your faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of God. If there's one verse you want to memorize, that's a good one. Just have it tucked in your brain. The forerunner and completer of your faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of God. That's the map. That is the map. You see, the text is written to a community to remember the terrain of what it means to be human. And it is complex terrain. There is not one way for everybody. No way. That does not work. The landscape of being human, no matter who we are, the writer of the gospel and the writer of Hebrews wants us to know it has been known and owned by the person of Jesus. And so the text that we have before us is a reminder to keep this image and keep this map in front of us at all times, to go back to it, to put it before us, to try something new and then look around and say, how did that work? Where do we need adjustment? Where do we need to have bigger imagination around our vision? Where do we need to change our narrative? Where do we need to redefine? Where do we need to let go of what has us? You see, these are the questions of the map, right? These are the questions that we are invited into. To know the gospel, you have to live it. It has the power to redefine everything that you are. It will ask everything of you, but it will give you everything in return. So friends, our invitation today is to trust the one who gave us the map. And not to tuck it in our pockets, but to get it out and take whatever steps we need to take on this terrain. Let us pray. 
Gracious and loving God, let us release the things that have us. Let us step into the largeness of who you are. By the power of your spirit, we ask.